and turn together to Isaiah chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1, marks one of the great transition statements in the Bible. Just rivaled, I suppose, by two that you find in the New Testament, in the book of Romans and the book of Ephesians, where the apostle, having described the terrible condition of humanity, goes on to describe the solution to that condition by this great transition, but God. But now, here Isaiah says, but there will be no more gloom. And there's a relationship between that transition in each of those books, Romans, Ephesians, and here in Isaiah, because of the context. And the context in Isaiah is the great gloom and distress and darkness and anguish, thick darkness, that he refers to at the end of chapter 8, as you can see. Because what Isaiah has been doing in this section from chapter 7 is describing the final rejection of the promise of God to Israel regarding the house of David and the promise or warning or threat of the effects of that in their history to come. That the effect of that would be exile, losing the land, losing Jerusalem, losing their identity, exile in Babylon, the destruction of ten of the tribes altogether, their annihilation, their scattering, their disappearance, the loss of northern Israel, and the reduction of the whole people, the whole nation. Isaiah describes it still as if it's one nation. It's reduction to merely a shadow of its former self. But even more seriously than that, that's in many ways the sacrament, the outward sign and symbol of something far deeper. More serious than that, the spiritual declension, the spiritual hardening that would grip the hearts of the people of Israel as part of God's judgment for rejecting the promise of God to the house of David. In fact, Isaiah has described not only Ahaz, the king, rejecting God's promise in chapter 7, but he's also described the fact that most of the people, most of the people would reject the Word of God containing the promises of God, would reject those outright and come into this state of darkness. But to those who held on to the Word of God, people like Isaiah, those of his disciples to whom he gave this Word to, to keep it and to guard it and to seal it for future generations, to those who would believe, Isaiah has told us there is hope for the future. Back in verse 17 of chapter 8, I will wait for the Lord. I will wait and put my hope in Him. Waiting patiently, waiting confidently, why? Because their confidence is in the promise of God. And now in chapter 9, verse 1, we find what that hope consists of. What will dispel the darkness? 
What will vanish that anguish that is described, that gloom of anguish, that thick darkness? It is the new David. It is the arrival of the King of Kings who will bring God's light and God's rule to the world. And that's the focus, really, of the passage that we have read this morning. The passage is, if you like, a bracket round a section that opens in chapter 7 with a promise made to King Ahaz of something that was going to happen way into the far-flung future, the promise of a child born to a virgin, a miraculous birth. That child was to be called Emmanuel, God with us. And there were hints about who this child might be in chapter 8. This child is to be the possessor of the promised land. This child is the reassurance of God that no matter who takes counsel against God's purposes and God's promises, they shall not stand. Why? Because of Emmanuel, because of God with us. But now he comes to tell us who this Emmanuel, this king, this kingly figure is going to be. He uses past tenses, prophetic past tenses, because the prophet, as he looks into the future, is so certain of these events unfolding as he's about to describe that he can refer to them as if they have already happened. And here's what he describes. He describes, first of all, God for us. God for us. There will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. There's coming a day when the gloom will dissipate, when the darkness will vanish, when there will be light penetrating this spiritual darkness that will grip the people of Israel. That, he says, is going to happen. It's going to happen, says Isaiah, in a specific territory way up to the far northeast of Palestine, in the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, the land known as Galilee. That land, that area, that territory, which was always the first to fall to opposing, invading armies, whether it was Syria or Assyria or Babylon or Greece or Persia or Rome. It was always from that northeast point they would come to penetrate down into Palestine and into Israel. And these people who were always the first to encounter the invaders, these people, says the prophet, will be the first to see the light of morning dawn upon God's people. They will be the first to see the Messiah when he comes. Galilee, Galilee of the nations. Isaiah describes it here unusually in the Bible as Galilee of the nations because it was this region which was going to be depopulated of Israelite people. And then those that were left there would intermarry with the Gentiles roundabout, and so therefore was always regarded by good ethnic Jews as being a somewhat disparate kind of people, people who were ethnically mixed and therefore of questionable racial origin and so on. It was always regarded as more Gentile than Jew, more Gentile than Israelite, Galilee of the nations. All this, Isaiah says, with foresight, 
with prophetic insight by the revelation of God to him. And from our perspective, of course, when the Messiah came, Matthew tells us in his gospel that Messiah made the base of his operations in Capernaum, in Galilee, of the nations. John in his gospel tells us that it was in Cana, Cana of Galilee, that Jesus performed his first miracle and there displayed or showed his glory forth in that area. And the very mention of Galilee of the nations, the Goyim, the Gentiles, reminds us that it was part of God's ultimate purpose to spread the grace of salvation, not simply to Jews, but also to Gentiles, and to include them both, Jews and Gentiles, in the covenant community of God. Now see how Isaiah breaks this down. What is the good news to these people? The good news is, one, that they would be brought from darkness into light. Verse 2, they will be brought from darkness into light. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Walking in darkness means to live in the shadow of death. Walking in darkness means spiritual death. That is separation from God and therefore separation from the light of God and the glory of God. Walking in darkness means to be exposed to God's anger. Walking in darkness means to be, as the Apostle Paul describes it in Ephesians, it means to have no hope and be without God in the world. Walking in darkness means to miss the glory, the light of the glory of God, and therefore not have the face of God, because the face of God is a light-filled, glory-filled face that brings penetrating light into the darkness. So that when a person comes to the Messiah, the Messiah Jesus, what happens to him? Well, the light of the glory of God shines into our hearts. It illumines us. It breaks through so that we see and grasp and know God for himself. And do you know the greatest issue that faces us in trying to communicate the gospel with men and women who don't believe it is this, that there is this fundamental darkness that blinds their minds. The God of this age, says the Apostle Paul, blinds the minds of those who don't believe so that they will not embrace the Savior. And the remarkable thing that happens with salvation is that that blindness is taken away. People get it. They see it. They grasp it. Where before they had never got it or seen it or grasped it. Let me illustrate it like this. William Wilberforce was uh, uh, one of the most formidable young members of parliament in uh, the Britain of the 18th century, late 18th century. And he gave his life, committed himself... To, the, to ending the slave trade. And uh, his best friend was a man called William Pitt, William Pitt the Younger. He had a brilliant mind. He's probably the most intelligent prime minister Britain ever had, which wouldn't be difficult, but he was an outstanding <laughs> individual. And uh, uh, William Wilberforce and William Pitt were great friends together, but William Pitt did not believe. He was not a believer. Uh, though he was a good man and he supported the end of the slave trade and he encouraged William Wilberforce in that task, he himself did not believe. And so on one occasion, William Wilberforce managed to persuade William Pitt to come to church with him 
there in the St. Mark's Battersea Rise in Clapham. So you can still go there today and worship in that same church. And the minister there in those days was a man called Richard Cecil. And it was one of those good days that a preacher has when he's really on fire and everything's flowing and all the, all the stops are out, all the tubes are working, and, and he was really in full flood, and William Wilberforce was thinking, this is an amazing sermon, you know, and he's sitting there wondering how William Pitt is doing next to him. And on the way out of church, William Pitt turns to William Wilberforce and says to him, I haven't the faintest idea what that man was talking about. The most brilliant mind in Parliament, but he did not have the faintest idea because his mind was darkened. He was in the thick darkness. But here is the prophet Isaiah saying, there's coming a day to those people who have hardened themselves against God and on whom the judgment will fall. There's coming a day when people in the most remote, distant, offensive part of Palestine will be the first to have their eyes opened. They'll be the first to get it when the Messiah comes and grasp it for themselves. They'll go from darkness to light and from sorrow to joy. There'll be this radical transformation that will take place. Joy like the harvester when the harvest is finished and all brought in. Joy like the soldier when he gets to sit down with his mates and distribute the spoil that they've taken, the spoils of war. The kind of exhilaration of success, that's the kind of thing. This objective joy that will occur because their numbers will increase. This, uh, this subjective joy because their hearts will rejoice in God, rejoice before the Lord, rejoice because of their entrance into the presence of God and their acceptance by the Lord, because all their fears will dissipate. All their joys will be confirmed. Now, there are three reasons that are given here as to why these people are so happy and why this is such a great moment in their lives. And you'll see them introduced for you in your Bible by the word for. For, verse 4, for the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken. Now, there are overtures in that text of two great events in the history of Israel. The first is the story of the Exodus. You remember Israel is in bondage, in slavery, in Egypt. And uh, the language of the yoke and the burdens and the shoulders and the oppressor, all of that is Exodus language taken from the book of Exodus describing the people in their slavery and what they needed. What they needed then was a mighty work of God, God to act, God to redeem them, God to bring them out by his mighty hand. The reference at the end of the verse to the day of Midian is a reference to another great victory in the life of Israel. The story of Gideon. You remember Gideon had 32,000 troops. He whittled them down to 22,000. And then God told him to whittle them down further till there were only 300. And with 300, he won a great victory against the Midianites. Now says Isaiah, when that day comes, there will be an intervention by God that is greater than the intervention of God when he brought Israel out of Egypt. Greater than the intervention of God when he spoiled the Midianites through Gideon. This will be an intervention of God to beat 
all others. And it will be an intervention to deal with a greater slavery, a greater bondage than physical slavery and physical bondage. It will release us from the bondage to sin. A great intervention and a great victory. Verse 5, every boot of the tramping warrior in battle, every garment rolled in blood, incinerated. In other words, all the evidences of battle and war and fighting brought to an end. It is victory in the context of conquest. When the warrior king comes, he will come to fight a great battle, the consequence of which will be victory for him and will be peace for us. Victory for him, peace for us. He will break down everything. He will fight the battle until he is victorious. And until all the evidences of battle, all the insignia of battle, will be destroyed. And how this fits in with what the New Testament says about the Messiah when he comes. Glory. Glory to God in the highest and on earth. Peace among those with whom he is pleased. When he comes, what does he do? He breaks down all the barriers. The barrier between me and God. The barrier between me and you. The barrier within myself. Towards my own happiness. That's why the apostle Paul tells us that Jesus himself is our peace. Who has made us, both Jew and Gentile, both one. Broken down in his flesh, the wall, the dividing wall of hostility. That's why he goes on to say, Jesus preached peace to those of you who were far off, Gentiles. Peace to those of you who were near, Jews. And through him we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. It will be like the abolition of war. But there's more. Not only is there a great victory and a divine intervention, there will be a promised heir. Look at the third four in this section Verse 6, 4. Here is the culminating argument. 4. To us a child is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. This is where the blessings are going to come from. There's going to be a champion. There's going to be an actor on the field of human history. There's going to be one who will come. He is a person. You notice that. This one is going to identify with us, to us, a child is born. This is the one whom he has described or introduced to us earlier as Emmanuel, God with us. This one has come to us. This one who has come to us, you notice, comes as a child. How will God come when God comes? Will he come with armies? Will he come to replace oppression and injustice and violence with more oppression, injustice and violence. No. When he comes, you will see the face of a child peering back at you. The word child there is a special emphasis of the text. He saves us by becoming human. God's intervention is this. God will become human. He is born. Notice the language. Notice the parallelism of the poetry here. He is born to us. He, this child is born in normal human birth. Yes, 
a miraculous conception, but a normal human birth. Not only that, but he is a son. That is, he is a divine son. But more than that, he is the king. The king was known as the son of God. He comes as the king. And he is God's gift to us. The son is given to us. And you notice the contrast. Back in verse 4, you have the shoulders of people being beaten by their captives. And here you have the son that is given carrying the load, the burden of his people on his shoulder, carrying the, the rule on his shoulder. He comes to undertake to carry the load, the burden of rule and salvation for his people. The child is born. And this theme of children, you know this amazing theme of children, we as Christian people should be assiduous in our care for boys and girls in our midst. We, we bring them as covenant children before him in their earliest days. We should be protective of them right through their lives. Children lie very significantly at the heart of Isaiah's vision of the future. His own two boys with their fancy names that were prophecies of the future. And this other boy, this other boy who is born of a virgin, whose name is Emmanuel, God with us. The whole idea of a child, a baby born, is the idea of vulnerability. Here, here in this vulnerable child is the beginning of the promise made to Eve outside the garden of a child who by his birth would crush Satan. Here is the promise to Abraham of one of his seed, singular, who would be the means of blessing all the nations of the world. Here is the promise of a descendant to Judah, one of the tribes of Israel, who would be the king of Israel and the world, to whom all the nations would come. Here is the promise of God to David, that one of his sons would have a kingdom that would last forever, forever. Here is the promise of the virgin-born child who comes as the Davidic king. In fact, the language of verses 6 and 7 is taken straight out of the promise God made to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. God for us, God fighting for us, God acting for us, God intervening for us. This was their hope. And secondly, their hope was God with us, God for us, God with us. The child's name, names, tells us about the character of this child. And there are four names given. Wonderful Counselor. He is wonderful, this child. This word wonderful comes from a Hebrew root that is exclusively used of things that only God can do. When Miriam and Moses sang the first duet we have in the Bible, uh, their song of victory after deliverance from Egypt, Miriam and Moses sang about God. They celebrated the God who delivered them. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonderful things? Later on in Isaiah chapter 29, Behold, I will do again wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, God says. He's going to change hearts. He's going to complete, 
completely fulfill his promises. He's going to do what he said he would do. And when you link wonderful and counselor, what you come up with is a divine counselor who teaches you his wisdom, a wisdom that comes only from God. Now here's the problem. The problem is that for you and I, we too often trust in our own wisdom. You have a problem, what do you do with a problem today? What do you do? You Google it, first of all. You see if you can come up with a solution. I mean, I sat in a doctor's office and seen the doctor Google it, which is really reassuring. Really reassuring. So you Google it first, and then if you haven't Googled it, you've got a friend. If you've got a friend, you call them up. You say, you know, what, do you, what should I do here? You know. And so the two of you who have absolutely no idea what you should do start talking about what you're going to do, and the, between the two of you, you come up with a solution. The problem is that for so many of us, the issues of life, the problems of life, the big questions of life, we look everywhere else first. When in fact, biblically, we should look to God first. What, is the, what does James say? If you lack wisdom, you're in a tight spot, you're in a difficult situation, you need wisdom, where do you get wisdom from? Google? Friends? No. If you lack wisdom, he says, you should you should ask of God. And He will give it to you. Because He is the wonderful counselor. You go to God. You go to God, and if you want to hear what God is saying, don't listen to voices in your head, but look into His Word. In His Word, there is wisdom for life. In His Word, there are rules for life. Live within the rules, listen to the wisdom, and you'll know what to do. Most of the time, we need to listen to God before we listen to anyone else. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. Here's an expression that's only ever used of God, the mighty one. In fact, the next chapter, we, ref we hear, uh, next chapter Isaiah actually uses it, of God. Uh, a remnant will return, a remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. It's a divine title. And you can hear echoes of the name Emmanuel, the child who's to be born, called Emmanuel. Those last words, El, is the Hebrew for God. He is God with us. He is the mighty El, the mighty God. The word mighty is often used of God when he's in action, God going out to battle. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. The Bible says. This child is being given a divine title. So not only is he descended from David, not only is he human, but he is the mighty God. This is what Paul brings together in the letter to Romans, in Romans 1 and 9. Romans 1, chapter 1. Romans chapter 9. In chapter 1 he says, the Messiah, Jesus, is descended from David according to the flesh. And in chapter 9, he says about the Messiah that he is God, the Messiah is God over all, blessed forever. This child who is to be born is the mighty God. And as the mighty God, there is nothing he cannot do. My God is so great, so strong, and so mighty. There's nothing that he cannot do. It's good to remind ourselves of that simple theology that is also profound.
Thirdly, he is the everlasting Father. Isaiah began his book by talking or describing God as one who had brought up children and had had to watch his children leave, leave him, run away from him. And in the Bible, kings, in fact, in the ancient world, kings were often regarded as the fathers of their people. And God is described. God is described in his godness as a fatherly figure. In, uh, for example, in uh, Psalm 103, you remember, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. I'm kind of sorry that somewhere along the line, the idea of a father being compassionate and tender has, has been lost. Tenderness is the quality of the woman and, and toughness the, the quality of the man. That's not my experience, by the way, of my own father. My own father was a, a hard-working man. His hands were toughened by hard toil. But he was the most tender person, tender-hearted person tough but tender person, I think, that I have ever met. And our Father in heaven is a tender but tough Father. Now, some people get themselves all in knots here, and they think, well, this is talking about the Messiah. Is it right to talk about the Messiah as the everlasting Father? And I remind you, of course, that that is to read back from where you are to where Isaiah was. Isaiah, at this point, does not understand or grasp the Trinity. He is describing God. He is saying to us that when the Messiah comes, he will be God with us. And what the people know about God in his godness is that there is a fatherly aspect to God. And that means, from our perspective of knowing that God is triune, that there is a fatherly aspect to God as God. So, the Holy Spirit as God, there's a fatherly aspect. The Son as God, there's this fatherly aspect. In fact, the prophet here in chapter 8 has just spoken as a type of the Messiah who is to come, and he says these words, which are actually quoted by the writer to the Hebrews, Here am I and the children you have given me. So there's a sense in which we're talking about the Messiah as God, as the King. He has a fatherly concern for his people. And in fact, it's Jesus, you remember, who helps us to distinguish between the general fatherliness of God and the particular in thinking of the first person of the Trinity as the Father, the Holy Father. And he teaches us to say to his Father, our Father, who are in heaven. And he tells us more. He says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. He says to us, this is eternal life that you may Know Him, the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom He sent. There's a sense in which to know Jesus is to know the Father and is to experience the fatherliness of God because Jesus sends His Holy Spirit, His Holy Spirit, into your heart to enable you to look at God and say, Abba, Abba, 
Father. He is an everlasting Father. One Sunday morning, I got a phone call to go over to my parents' house, and I found my father dead. But this father is an everlasting father. He will never, ever leave you. He will never, ever forsake you. He will never, ever give up on you. He will always be there for you. He will always be there around you and underneath you and beside you. And he will always be there for you to go to. Always. An everlasting Father. The Prince of Peace. The commander of the armies of God. Who wins the prize of peace for his people. Shalom. Shalom. We, we often use the word peace as the absence of conflict or the absence of war. I know what you grandparents are like. You know, you have the children around, the grandchildren around, and then when they leave, you sit down and you think, peace at last. <laughs> My mother used to be like that, actually. She loved her grandchildren, but I've been there when they left and she sat down with that sigh. And she would quote an old hymn, the words of which are these, peace, perfect peace, with loved ones far away. <laughs> what if you wanted? My goodness. But you know, peace in the Bible, shalom, is so much richer, bigger than that. It's not just the absence of war. I mean, to have peace with God means that I know His favor, I know His smile, His face shining on me. To have peace with other people is to enjoy harmony with them, a relationship with them, something we share with them. To have peace inside, within, is to experience the absolute well-being. It is to be perfectly integrated, fully rounded. Peace is often linked with righteousness and joy. Because it's based on the righteousness that God gives to us in Christ, and it produces joy. The joy of knowing not only my sins are forgiven, but that my status before God is that I'm accepted fully in the Beloved, in the Messiah, Jesus. This is the God who is with us in Christ. This is the God we celebrate at Christmas. But we celebrate Him every day of the year because He has come to us. God with us. God for us. And God over us. Very quickly. Very quickly, those last lines describe the kingdom of this greater David who is coming, the King of Kings. It tells us, and you can fill this out for yourself, His kingdom will increase. History is going in its direction. His rule, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun doth his excessive journeys run. His kingdom will prosper. The foundation of it will be justice and righteousness. These are moral principles. 
It's based on the justice that happens at the cross. Friends of mine wrote a hymn called In Christ Alone, and it's a great hymn, one of the greats. And there's a line in that hymn that says that on the cross, God's wrath was satisfied. Now, it has to say that because of the poetry. (laughs) Technically, on the cross, it was God's justice that was satisfied. His wrath was exhausted. His justice was satisfied. And as a result of that, righteousness is the hallmark of his kingdom. The people in the kingdom are pronounced right with God, righteous with God, justified. The kingdom will prosper. The kingdom will last. There will be no end to it from this time forth and forevermore. And above all, fourthly, the kingdom will come. Why will it come? Look at the end of that section. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here's Isaiah in dark days. He's living in the time of the Assyrians. The Babylonians are going to come, cream the land, destroy the temple and the city. After them, the Persians will come to occupy the land. After them, the Greeks, and after them, the Romans. And far into this distant future that he's describing when the people in Galilee of the nations see the light of the world. The Romans are still in power. The people are still in exile. But Isaiah says there's coming a day when there will be liberty from exile. You'll come back home again. But it won't be the home, the land, the promised land uh, there in Palestine. It will be home to the heavenly Jerusalem. Home to that future that God is preparing of a new heaven and a new earth. Then you will be fully home in the presence of God. God will do it. It will be God's passionate zeal that will do it. The passion and zeal of a lover for his beloved. The passion and zeal of God for his people. He will do it because he has committed everything to doing it. It was in his zeal that Jesus cleansed the temple. It was in his zeal that Jesus set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem. It was in his zeal that Jesus stayed on the cross rather than call that million angels to come and destroy the earth and set him free. It was his zeal that took him all the way to that three hours of blackness and darkness on the cross, taking the darkness off of us onto himself and exhausting the wrath of God on that cross as he satisfied the justice of God and demonstrated the love of God for people like us. It was the zeal of God that did it. The zeal of God was harnessed, channeled, energized into doing it. Why? For you and for me. For us who believe so that you and I would enjoy this rich and great salvation. Can you imagine this? All of the energies of the God of the universe 
A God who doesn't need to prove anything and makes himself nothing and humbles himself to be a little baby thing in its mother's arms and to be a young man pinned to a Roman gibbet in order that he might bring you and me this full salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that this morning as we, on this Lord's Day, celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, celebrate our Prince Messiah who has come, celebrate that he has now extended the borders of Israel to include Gentiles like us alongside believing Jews, and given to us the right and privilege of all of us being children of you, our Father, through faith in Christ by the power of the Spirit. We pray that we would rejoice in that salvation too. We ask in his strong name.